We're going to read the Bible now. The passage that I'm reading is Psalm 51. If you don't have a paper Bible with you, you can pull it up on BibleGateway.com or through the digital outline. For the director of music, a Psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness, even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. That that psalm's got to be just about the most insensitive thing anyone's ever said. It's so incredibly unfeeling. Did you spot why? In verse 4, David says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight, so that you're right in your verdict and you're justified when you judge. Which sounds really godly, right? After all, David's confessing his sin. He's saying that God is right to judge him. It all sounds good and well, until you realize who else David has sinned against. Did you spot when David wrote this psalm? Just look at the top of the psalm again, at when David wrote these words. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So David wrote this after he's been caught committing adultery with Bathsheba. And so to understand this better, just come back with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11, and see what David has done to other people here. 2 Samuel 11 verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. 
From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her, and the man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. That's what David's done. He's committed adultery. He has lured and seduced a woman named Bathsheba, who is the wife of Uriah which means that he's led her into sin, and he's also committed a terrible crime against her husband Uriah. But it actually gets worse, because Bathsheba falls pregnant to David, and so David, in order to cover up everything he's done, he calls Uriah back from the war, and he tries to trick Uriah into sleeping with Bathsheba in the hope that she'll fall pregnant, or at least there's some plausible defense. And he does it by pretending that he's Uriah's friend and getting him drunk. And so, along with committing adultery with this man's wife, he now lies to him, pretends to be his friend, and lures him into sin. But then it gets worse. Because when Uriah doesn't, in fact, sleep with Bathsheba, look what David does to him down in verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. This is a grubby despicable episode in David's life. He sleeps with another man's wife, and then he lies to him and deceives him. He leads him to get drunk, and then finally he murders this man in order to cover up his own guilt. And after all of that, David has the gall to pray against you, God, against you only, have I sinned? and done what is wrong in your sight. How on earth can David pray that prayer? Because, you know, I reckon Uriah's parents, I reckon Uriah's brothers and sisters might have a different point of view, don't you? What about what you did to our brother, David? What about what you did to our son? What about what you did to his wife? Against us you have sinned, David. Never mind God, you've sinned against us. So how on earth can David possibly pray these words and pray them under the influence of the Holy Spirit? Because remember, Psalm 51 is God's word. How on earth could the Holy Spirit ever lead David to pray against you only have I sinned? Well, that's what we're going to look at tonight. We're doing a series of four weeks on the idea of hope, and we've done hope for a fresh start, because it's a new year, fresh start. We've done hope for a better world. Next week, we're going to look at hope for a rest. That's a laugh, rest, talking to a whole bunch of uni students. Boy, we failed on that one in the middle of a three-month holiday, but that'll be good for the morning church people. This week, we're looking at hope for fixed relationships, and that is something that we actually hope for, isn't it? Because it doesn't matter how old you are, and it doesn't matter what kind of life you've lived, 
Broken relationships is something that is a completely universal experience. In fact, 2020 showed us that, didn't it? Because it turns out that for most people, the hardest part of last year generally wasn't COVID. It wasn't COVID that got us down. It was all the relational stuff around it. I mean, what an incredible year. Remember all of the violence and all of the hatred and the anger around all the Black Lives Matter protests, where people were bashed and even killed for what they believed. Remember all the anger and the hatred in the US over the election that just exploded a week ago in violence in their capital. Remember the selfishness of people who hoarded toilet paper and the extraordinary scenes we saw of people having fights in the middle of supermarkets over rolls of toilet paper for crying out loud. And yet it wasn't just out there. For lots of people, they said that by far the hardest part of COVID was actually the strain inside their own house where you take people who aren't used to being forced to spend all this time together and all of a sudden we were locked down in a house together and tempers began to fray and often the fracture lines that were already there in relationships just got pulled open because people were forced into this pressure cooker together. You see, we might necessarily feel it every day. In fact, most of us probably don't feel the brokenness of relationships every day, but they're always there. Throughout our lives, we will always have some of our relationships that are just broken and we can't even imagine how they're fixed as part of life. And in fact, for some of us, brokenness in our relationships really does dominate our lives now. The unhappy relationship we've got with our parents, the struggling over an abusive relationship, what that person did to us For some of us, our lives are actually defined by the brokenness of our relationships. And look, Christianity has to have an answer to that, doesn't it? If it's going to be any use at all, Christianity surely has to explain broken relationships, and it's got to hold out some kind of hope. Otherwise, what good is it? And so tonight, we're going to look at hope for broken relationships. And far from being insensitive, far from being offensive, We're going to see that David's words there in verse 4 are actually the key to fixing broken relationships. I'm going to pray, I'm going to ask God to help us to understand His Word. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we know that we live in a world where relationships break down and for some of us, it's actually defined our lives. The things that people have done to us, the things we have done to other people, shape who we are. We pray tonight that you will help us to understand how relationships can be fixed. We pray that tonight we'll do more than just learn things from your Word. We pray that you'll shape the kind of people we're going to be for the rest of our lives. And we pray that tonight the good that comes from your Word would help our relationships for the rest of our lives. Amen. You know, it's always a good thing in the Bible when you come across it a bit of the Bible you disagree with. It's never very comfortable, is it? It's always, it's always really hard when you find a bit of the Bible you just can't make sense of or you, you just can't agree with. It's, it's really tempting just to, to flip the page and pretend you never read it. But when you find something in the Bible you don't agree with, that's a golden moment because it shows you that here is something you haven't understood before. Here's an area where my thinking is not the same as God's thinking. 
here's an opportunity for me to change my mind, to think more like God does. And when I think that Psalm 51 verse 4 is insensitive, it shows me that I don't understand relationships yet. This is my chance to, to change the way I think about relationships. Because you see, even though David did sleep with Uriah's wife, and even though he then deceived him, and even though he led him to get drunk, and even though David ultimately killed this man, actually David's real crime was against God. Against you, against you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. I don't understand how that can be true yet, so what is it that I don't understand about relationships? Well, I think there are two key things that we don't understand about relationships, and it's why this verse doesn't make sense to us. And if I did understand them, then David's words here would make sense. The first thing we don't understand about relationships is that God is, in fact, involved in every single relationship I ever have. In fact, God's involved in every single moment, every single second of my life. Because God is my creator, and He's my sustainer, and He's also my king. So God's the one who created me in, my in the first place. He's the one who knit me together in my mother's womb. And what that means is He owns me. From the moment of my birth to the moment of my death, I am owned by someone else, the one who made me. I'm a manufactured object, and my manufacturer owns me, my God. And yet God didn't just manufacture me, He didn't just make me, He also sustains me. So God is the one who keeps my heart beating. God's the one who gives me my next breath, which means that it's not just, I don't just owe God for my initial existence, I owe God for my continued existence. And God's also my King. God is the ruler who has the right to say how I should behave in every single second of the life that He gives me. Now, what that means is, no matter what situation I'm in, whether I'm alone with one other person or completely alone by myself, I'm never, in fact, alone. I'm always answerable to God. And so, every single problem I ever have with another human being is firstly a problem I have with my God. Because when I lie to you, I haven't just lied to you, I've also disobeyed my God who told me not to lie. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba, it wasn't just Bathsheba that he sinned against, and it wasn't just Uriah, it was God who told him not to commit adultery. And it was God who told him not to lead others into sin. And it was God who told him not to murder. You see, there are other people in my life, I can say, this is none of your business. This doesn't concern you. But never God. Everything is God's business. Everything concerns God. Because He created me, He sustains me, and He rules me. God is involved in every single second that He gives me. That's the first thing I don't understand about relationships. But you know, the second thing I don't understand about relationships, and so therefore David's words don't make sense, is the majesty of God. See, why is it that David says, against you, against you only, have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight? 
Why does David say that? Is it because he's forgotten what he did to Uriah? Is it because he's forgotten all of the carnage that he caused, not just in Uriah's life, but also in his entire kingdom, as it turns out? No, I don't think David's forgotten it at all. I think David probably was haunted by these things for the rest of his life. Certainly, his reign as a king was haunted by it. It's just that David understands the majesty of God. Uriah was a man, a human being, and David sinned against him. But Yahweh is God, and to sin against God is incomparably more serious than to sin against a human being. It's such a serious thing that David can say even murder is nothing beside it. Now, we really struggle to get that, don't we? I find it so hard to say that compared to sin against God, even murder is nothing, but that's what David says, isn't it? Compared to disobeying God, even extinguishing the life of another human being is nothing. I find that so hard to say because it's a life. But it just shows you how little I understand the majesty of God. God sits enthroned above the universe. God created the stars and the galaxies and the planets. God brought everything from nothing. God's majesty is immense. And sometimes, I just need to be reminded of that. I need to be reminded of it in the same way that God reminded Job. So, just come with me to one of the most extraordinary passages of the Bible. This is Job 38. It is one of the most extraordinary, amazing bits of the Bible. Because, see, God is by and large silent through the book of Job. He speaks a little bit in chapter 1. But for 38 chapters, you get Job's friends speaking, and you get strangers speaking, and then Job speaks. In Job 38, God finally begins to speak. And look at what God says in Job 38, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man and I'll question you and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid bare its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garments and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? When I said, this far you may come and no further, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning? Or shown the dawn its place, that it might take the earth by its edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light, and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea? Or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. And this goes on for chapter after chapter after chapter. There's three whole chapters as God says to Job, Job, do you control the rain? No, you don't. 
Job, did you create the stars? Job, do you understand all the animals? Do you control the lightning? On and on it goes for three chapters until finally, just flip over to chapter 40, verse 1, and you get Job's answer. Chapter 40, verse 1, the Lord said to Job, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. And then Job answered the Lord, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice. But I will say no more. And Job learns the lesson that my heart finds so hard to learn. The majesty of God. The fact is, the smallest crime against God is worse than any other crime against any other being. And I fail to understand that even after more than 30 years of being a Christian. But Jesus understands it. Remember Jesus' parable about two servants? Both of them owe money. One servant owes his king 10,000 bags of gold, more than anyone could ever pay back in a thousand lifetimes, an immeasurable sum. The second servant owes the first servant 100 silver coins, trivial amount of money. That's how Jesus compares our debt to God against our debt to other people. David says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. Because compared to disobeying God, even murder is nothing. Do you see how little we understand relationships? How constantly I forget that God is in every single relationship, in fact, every single second I have. And I constantly forget His majesty. But you know what's even scarier? Is when I realize it, I start to see how massive a problem I have, right? I just have the most colossal problem because I haven't just rebelled against God once, I've done it continually all throughout my entire life. I have rebelled against the majestic God thousands and thousands and thousands of times. So if you've got Psalm 51 open, look in verse 5, David says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Since the womb, I have been sinful against the God of majesty. How on earth can I possibly ever make this right? How on earth could I ever fix this relationship? My debt is 10,000 bags of gold. It's more than a thousand lifetimes could ever repay to God to fix the relationship. I've got a colossal problem. And yet Psalm 51 says, frankly, some of the most 
beautiful words ever written. Far from being insensitive, these are beautiful, beautiful words. Have a look in verse 1 again. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. That right there is the secret to fixed relationships. Mercy. Unfailing love. David doesn't try to repay God. He can't. He casts himself on God's mercy. He begs God. He says, blot out my sins, cross out my debt, blot it off your ledger so that you can't read it anymore. He asks God to, to wash away his guilt. Wash away the stain, God, he says. Well, look down in verse 7. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. He says, wash away my guilt, Lord. Sweep it away so that it doesn't mark me anymore. Hide your face. Isn't that the most beautiful image? The idea of God hiding his face from sin, looking away so that he can't see it. That's what David asks for. And knowing that God will do it, look what David says in verse 8. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones who have crushed rejoice. As David was facing his guilt, at the beginning of the psalm, could he ever have said that? Having murdered a man, having committed adultery with that man's wife, having betrayed an entire nation here because he's their king, and having rebelled against God, could he ever have dreamt that he would talk about gladness and joy? But he can when he knows that God has hidden his face from his sin and blotted it out, and washed it away. David's joyful here because the relationship is finally fixed. Lies, adultery, murder, even rebellion against the majesty of God. If God forgives those things, the relationship's fixed. See, David's hope for a fixed relationship doesn't depend on paying God back doesn't depend on being good enough, it depends on God's mercy. Isn't that very hard of Christianity? If you've been a Christian for a while, isn't this exactly what Christianity is all about? God does not ask me to pay Him back. I can't pay Him back. It's 10,000 bags of gold worth of debt. Now, God hides His face from my evil, from all of the things I've done, and instead, he looks to Jesus' sacrifice. He looks on the sacrifice of God the Son, who died in my place and blots out my penalty 
and washes away my guilt. Christianity is the most amazing message. I have offended the God of majesty. I have done the worst thing you could ever imagine doing. And yet God Himself takes my punishment in the form of His Son. So great is His mercy. So great is His compassion. And so I don't have to pay Him back. No, I can say exactly what David said. Have mercy on me, God, according to your great, um, your great compassion, your unfailing love. Wash away my iniquity. Hide your face from me. Have you said those words to God? Have you asked God to show you compassion and mercy? I tell you the joy, the gladness of knowing that that debt is gone. Have you said those words? Or did you never realize that you could? You've been thinking that it's all up to you to turn over a new leaf, be good enough. Have you never realized you needed to? You never realized what a serious thing it was to ignore the majestic God. Today's the day to do it. Today's the day to cast yourself on God's mercy and say, God, you fix this mess. You fix my relationship with you by Jesus' death because I cannot do it. In a few moments, I'm going to pray the kind of prayer that you'd need to pray to fix that relationship with God. But in the meantime, I actually haven't said anything at all about our relationships with each other yet, have I? All the things we started with, terrible relationships with our parents, fights in the supermarkets, broken promises, does Jesus care about that? Can Jesus do anything about it? Does Jesus fix it? Look, in my nearly 50 years on the planet, I think this is just about the hardest thing for human beings to do. We can put people on the moon, but we can't get two people who've slept in the same bed with each other for 20 years to forgive each other. Fixing broken relationships just seems like the most insurmountable problem for us. Sometimes it's just because human relationships get so knotty with sin tied and piled on top of each other so that you can't even see the beginning anymore. That's what happens in marriage. After 25 years of marriage, you can't even remember anymore when the first sin started and the first uncaring words were spoken. And how do you untie that? Sometimes it's we can't let go of what the person did. We just so want justice. We so want that person to pay. And yet sometimes the person won't even acknowledge what they've done. Sometimes we don't even want justice. We would just settle for an apology and we can't even get that. Relationships are so hard. But come with me to the parable that we talked about earlier. Matthew 18. 
and we'll see the very heart of how you fix a relationship. Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus, Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he wasn't able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, and he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. And they went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now, I want to say, this isn't everything that the Bible has to say about fixing relationships. We're actually producing a video, we've already filmed it, of extra content that's going to go out on the Facebook pages this week that just that gives some kind of hints, some helpful kind of pointers into practically how do we go about fixing relationships. But that passage right there is the very heart of how you fix relationships. The heart of fixing relationships between two broken human beings is not that I make amends for what I've done or that I force you to make amends to me. It's not that I pretend that you didn't hurt me. The way we fix relationships is we dwell on the immensity of our own forgiveness. I dwell on, I dig into, I fully realize the immensity of my forgiven debt to God. Because when I, when I sincerely and deeply and prayerfully dwell on the immensity of my debt and my forgiveness, I realize that nothing you have ever done to me is as bad as what I've, been, what I've done to God. Look, I realize that this might actually sound insensitive. 
Because some of us here have had terrible things done to us, haven't we? Please don't hear me denying that terrible things have been done to you. I speak as someone who's had terrible things done to me. And I'd never want to deny what may have been done to you. But Jesus points us here to the tremendous, the heart-softening, the overwhelming forgiveness that God has given to us. And then He says to us, will you be like your Father in just this smallest measure as you forgive what's done to you? The hope of fixed relationships is found in mercy, in forgiveness. And look again, I know it's complex. Sometimes we want to forgive, but we're so hurt, we're so bruised by what's happened, we don't even know where to begin. Sometimes the relationship's been broken for so long, we just can't even find out where to, where to go to. It's like a big ball of string, and you can't even see the, the end of it to untangle it. Sometimes the person won't even admit they've done the wrong thing. I know how complex it is. I'm not saying it's simple. I'm certainly not saying it's automatic or easy. It might take you years, and you might need to get help. But Jesus doesn't just give us hope in this passage. He shows us how it's done. The way to forgive, the way to fix relationships is to dwell on the forgiveness we have received. I have been forgiven of the worst crime that anybody could ever, ever commit. And I didn't just do it once, thousands upon thousands of times, I have rebelled against the majesty of God. And He hid His face from my sin. He blotted out my transgression. And so in time, with His help, I can forgive. Are you a Christian who at the moment is really struggling to forgive? Are you hoping for a fixed relationship but you just don't even know where to start? Will you start by praying one simple prayer this week? You can see it up on the screen. Will you consider praying this prayer? God against you and you only have I sinned. Thank you that you have blotted out my sin and forgiven my debt. Help me to trust you with this conflict I'm in. Help me to want to forgive. Work in my heart to make me like you. Notice I'm not asking you yet to say that you have forgiven. Because the human heart's a complex thing. But will you want to want? Will you ask God to help you want to forgive? And by His Spirit, He'll help you. Through His Word, through His people, through help. Will you commit to praying the prayer? Why don't we pray?
God against you and you only have I sinned. Thank you that you have blotted out my sin and forgiven my debt. Help me to trust you with this conflict that I'm in. Help me to want to forgive. Please work in my heart to make me like you. Amen.